I'm just delighted that we have uh, three great economists and uh, one of the um, strongest labor leaders in the country. So I want to welcome uh, to the panel tonight uh, Stephanie Kelton, who is a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. Uh, and Stephanie and I have worked together for a number of years. In fact, she was the head of our budget committee in the United States Senate, of where I am the ranking member. We're going to hear from Jeffrey Sachs. Jeff is a professor, author, and advisor to governments around the world and to the United Nations. We're going to hear from Robert Reich. Uh, uh, Robert is the former U.S. Secretary of Labor from 1993 to 1997 and is today a professor of public policy at the University of California in Berkeley. And we're going to also hear from Sarah Nelson, who is the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants and has held that position since 2014. So I see uh, Robert on the screen here. Uh, Robert, let me start with you. What is the state of the economy today? What do you expect will be happening in the months to come? Well, sadly, uh, Bernie, uh, jobs are hemorrhaging. Uh, you alluded to this, but the actual official numbers we don't have yet. Unofficially, I would say we're heading uh, rapidly toward about 15% unemployment. We could get up to, well, I, I hate to say it, at the present rate, we could get up to 25 or even 30% unemployment. Just to give you a context, uh, during the Great Depression of the 1930s, we had 25% unemployment. Uh, that means that if nothing changes in terms of our current trajectory, we could actually be worse than the Great Depression in terms of people who are jobless. Uh, now, we also have another set of workers who are in trouble in America. Uh, they have jobs, but they are so-called essential workers. Many of them are not getting the protective gear they need. They don't have the, uh, the basic uh, sort of uh, sick days, paid sick days, uh, hazard pay. Many of them are at the minimum wage. Uh, many of them are risking their lives every day, and yet, uh, you know, we applaud them and they're heroes of the country, but we're not treating them as if they are heroes. They're in very, very tough and difficult straits. Uh, we've got another group of workers. Uh, in fact, uh, let's, let's call them uh, the workers who are managerial and technical workers. Uh, they are doing pretty well. I mean, the class structure that we see in America, the managerial and technical and uh, uh, and professional workers, many of them are working remote uh, and they, their paychecks continue, they're inconvenienced, let's put it that way. It's privileged to be a remote worker in this society right now. It's about 40% of the workforce uh, and, uh, and very, it's very easy to lose sight of the others. And everything I've said does not even include the people who are inmates, uh, who are homeless, uh, who are in the armed forces, the, the Navy, uh, a lot of people uh, are Native American, uh, Native Americans, uh, many people are in confined spaces uh, and they are and being, hearing uh, terrible, terrible things as to how vulnerable they are to the... Uh, they, they are the most vulnerable. So each, right, of groups, each of these groups needs very particular and immediate right. assistance. And we're going to get back to that in a moment. Stephanie, what's going on in the economy from... Uh, your uh, perspective, and uh, where do we go from here? Stephanie Kelton? Well, you, you and Bob are exactly right. This is a catastrophic event, the likes of which 
I imagine none of us in this conversation has ever seen in our lifetimes. Um, the wheels are coming off of the economy. When you lose as many jobs in a three-week period as we lost during the entire Great Recession, you have real problems. And because the wave continues, as, as Bob said, we could see unemployment rates that rival or even surpass those that were seen in the Great Depression. So, you know, I spoke with a colleague um, back in Kansas City this morning. He's been driving around the city a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, the businesses had signs outside that said temporarily closed. Now he says many of those same businesses have changed the signs to say out of business. They're shuttered. The boards are up. It's happening very, very quickly. The downward spiral is underway. And unless we do something very soon, to substantially arrest this decline, we are headed for uh, an economic downturn that is going to be years, that is going to take years to recover from. Jeff Sachs, what's, how's the world look from your view? I think, Senator, the, uh, the main thing to emphasize is that everything about the economics depends on how we fight the epidemic itself. This has to be our starting point. We have had the biggest government failure in American history with Trump, uh, a completely incompetent narcissist as president who does not listen to any expertise, who has mishandled the fight against the disease itself. The reason the economy has been closed down is that the virus got completely out of control. The reason it got completely out of control is that our public health system was overwhelmed because Trump did nothing for weeks except lie to the American people or because of his incredible incompetence, say there's no problem, everything's going to be fine. Going forward to save the economy, we have to stop the transmission of the virus. That requires a public health approach that not only do we have this lockdown period, but we build the capacity to identify people with symptoms, to help them self-isolate or to quarantine in a safe place. In other words, to do the normal public health measures that throughout many countries, especially in East Asia, has meant they're not closed down. Uh, they are not fully normal, but they're not facing the collapse we are because they have a government that works. We have a narcissist in chief that is completely wrecking American society. Okay, Jeff, I'm gonna get back in a minute um, to where we go from here, what we can learn from countries around the world. I wanna to go to Sarah Nelson. Sarah uh, is the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, also a member of the board of the AFL-CIO. So how does all of this look, Sarah, not only from your own people, and I want to talk about the agreement that you fought for in the stimulus package, which to me is a model for where we have got to go. But what's your perception in terms of uh, how this is impacting workers all across the country? Well, Bernie, I want to just um, introduce you to my son, Jack, here really quickly. Hi. Um, <laughs> because Jack is here. What do you want to say really uh, quick? Uh, um, hello. Um, it, this is kind of odd that there's possibly three million people, most likely three million people, just looking at me right now. Yeah, 
Okay. And he's okay, doing school from home. Okay, All good. right, dude. All right. Go back to your homework now. Thank you very much. But, <laughs> you know, we have people all over this country who are homeschooling their kids right now and dealing with these things at home. We have to understand what's happening actually out there in the real world. And that is that people are still trying to provide for their families in the middle of this crisis. So there's things that we have to do. We have to fight the virus. And the way that you do that is you get good information, you make sure the medical people on the front lines have the ability to test, isolate, uh, and treat that. And, and you do that by strengthening everyone else. The, the idea of staying at home means that we have to get help to people very quickly because everyone who's strong enough to take care of themselves really needs to be able to do that. They need to be able to safely keep their kids at home and continue their schooling virtually. They need to be able to do these things. So um, we came up with a program that says that, you know, wherever it's possible to use these large employers as a payroll pass-through to people so that people can stay in their jobs, continue to get the paychecks that they've built their lives around, stay connected to their health care. Let me just say, it is a travesty that you have to have a job in this country to have health care. But that is where we are right now. And we, as we work to fix that, Bernie, and we're going to fix that, um, we have to have help for people right now. So if you keep them in their jobs, keep their paychecks going, keep them connected to their health care, keep them connected to their other benefits, keep them paying into our tax system and keep them be able to be consumers in our economy, then we can actually build a V-shaped economy here where we have a dip and we can take off right again and when once we get this virus under control. That's what we've been working on. That's what we have to do because there's real people out there trying to take care of their families right now. And they can't wait weeks and months to get this help. Thank you very much, Sarah. And all right, let's jump into the issue uh, of where we go from here from government policy. All of you know that we, uh, a few weeks ago, passed a $2.2 trillion emergency stimulus bill. I think all of us will agree that was not enough. There was stuff in there that should not have been in there. There was stuff not in there that should have been in there. Where do we go from here? All right. If you were, you're the president of the United States, Bob Reich, what do you do next? Uh, well, don't call me Bob Reich. Call me President Reich. Or all right, Mr. President. All right. Uh, I, this morning, uh, Bernie, I was on the phone uh, with uh, Representative Jayapal, a great progressive from yep. the state of Washington, uh, who is pushing uh, an idea that you also are looking into. I think it's very, very important, very promising. And that is that the, uh, the government make direct payments, direct deposits uh, to companies with regard to their payrolls. And those companies pledge to keep people on the payroll. You don't go through the banks. You don't go through this uh, sort of Luke Goldberg machine that is now the Payroll Protection Act or the Payroll Protection Plan. Uh, but it's a direct payment. And also, if there is any problem, uh, you, you, you just, you just uh, get the, the payments back after the fact. You claw them back uh, if the companies cannot prove that they maintain those payrolls. Uh, that is the best idea I've heard. And believe it or not, there is one Republican senator, uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri, who seems to be intrigued by that idea. There might be even some possibility of bipartisanship. Okay, I should tell you what you already know. This is exactly the issue uh, that I and a few other senators are working on. Uh, we think that that is the most direct way to get money into people's pockets who desperately need it, because what we have seen right now is the implementation 
of the various programs out there for a wide variety of reasons are disastrous. People are not getting the money when they need it. Uh, the good news is that tonight, and um, we have somebody right here uh, on the panel who has fought for that very principle and against a lot of odds succeeded in winning that. Uh, and I want Sarah Nelson to talk about uh, that principle in terms of what it means uh, to workers in the airline industry. What have you accomplished? What's going to happen there? So out of the uh, $2 trillion CARES Act, we got 1.25 allocated directly to workers. And what's really important is that there have been people who have said, oh, don't bail out the airlines. Well, that's exactly right. We got ahead of this and said, we're not going to just bail out the airlines. We're not going to bail out corporations anymore. We can flip this on its head um, because when you bail them out, they put that money where they want to put it, and including into executive bonuses or whatever else. And they also continue with practices that put us in this place in the first place, uh, accepting the fact that this is a major crisis, not of their making. But up until now, they were giving back stock buybacks out of their revenues rather than reinvesting in their employees, rather than reinvesting in the business, and both the workers and the consumers hurt. So we said, we're going to build a bailout that's a people's bailout. And we were able to get into the CARES Act. The, the provision for the aviation workers is $25 billion allocated to go to payroll. So it's a direct pass-through. It says very clearly it can only be spent on wages and benefits. It's defined by the same period of time last year from April to September. So those numbers are already defined by their public reporting that they have to do. And um, that money can only go to the workers. Right, let, me jump in, let me jump in just to make it clear to everybody. What Sarah is talking about is that while there have been massive layoffs in the airline industry, it is a totally crippled industry right now. Two million workers in that industry will continue to get the same exact paychecks they previously got, even if they're at home right now, and they're going to continue, as I understand it, to get the health care that they previously had as, as well. Is that correct? Yes. The fastest way to get help to people is to keep them on their payroll because those payroll systems are already in place. You just give the money to continue those paychecks. And I should just note one thing, Bernie, that this... Um, this country works at high productivity. And so workers in all industries have been working overtime. So let's be clear, even though we're continuing the paychecks, because we have been asking American workers to do more to make ends meet, rather than be able to have one job that's enough to have uh, your, to pay rent and pay all your bills and have your health care and everything, you actually have to work overtime or, or two and three jobs to get by. So people won't get that additional income, but they will get the base income. They will keep their health care, keep their benefits. Right. Uh, and Sarah, I am assuming that you believe that what we have accomplished for the airline workers should be applicable to every worker in the country. It's a template that should be applicable to every single worker in the industry and what it does too is it locks in the fact that these companies cannot have stock buybacks. There's a cap on executive compensation, no dividends, and it requires them to keep everyone on the payroll. Stephanie, is this a good idea? Yeah, it's a great idea. It's exactly the right thing to do. When we put social distancing measures in place and asked workers who are able to stay home, to self-isolate, to stay out of the workplace, we were really... I think the point was to hit the pause button. It was never to hit the stop button. It was never to stop workers 
from receiving a paycheck, from being attached to their employer. It was never meant to stop people from having the health care that they need. It was never meant to stop small businesses from remaining the backbone of our economy. It wasn't a stop measure. It was it was supposed to be a pause. And as we did that, the purpose being to save lives, we're asking workers to help us in that endeavor. We're just changing the job description so that your job now is to stay home, help us flatten the curve, keep people safe, and in return for participating in this social um, project to keep people safe, to save lives, we're going to protect you as well. And we're going to safeguard your payroll. We're not going to let you lose your house, your health care, your livelihood. And so it's exactly the right thing to do. Uh, Jeff, you agree or? I, of course, as a basic principle, I agree. I, but I do want to emphasize that our essential task in addition to helping people during this period is to be able to safely have economic activity again. And people need to understand that after a lockdown of whatever period, if one just opens up again, the epidemic will come back again, unless we're doing something different, unless we have a public health system in place at that point. And the problem is we're not building that public health system during these weeks because instead of having a serious national effort to do it, we have a president who is uh, in these so-called briefings venting for two hours of narcissism, but not building the things that we need to do, Bernie, to be able to open up the economy again. And there are systematic things that need to be done to increase the uh, use of uh, applications and people and call banks and the kinds of call banking that uh, you have uh, volunteers in the campaign to be contacting people, identifying people with symptoms, helping them to isolate early. This is our biggest challenge in addition to keeping people whole during the emergency period. Otherwise, we'll open up and then there will be a resurgence and then we will clamp down and we will face a continuing disaster. And the point I would like to emphasize for many people is that many countries have succeeded in stopping this epidemic. All through Asia, the numbers are so much lower than in the United States because they had a public health system in place. The number of deaths per million is one-tenth or a hundredth of what we have in the United States. We're killing people by the foolishness of not having a public health system in this country. And this is where we need immediate action. I don't know how to work around a president that is so utterly psychopathic and incompetent that we can't focus on even saving lives in this country. But my point economically is that until we have that public health component, we will be in lockdown mode or in yo-yo mode of opening new epidemic, closing, catastrophe. So we have to have a way to open the economy carefully and safely, and that requires planning. That's what the governors are trying to do. And then Trump shouts them down. And this is the craziness of our situation. I agree. And let me, while we're on the subject of health care, let me pick up a point that I think Sarah made a moment ago. Uh, 
let us talk about, you talk about insanity, you talk about absurdity. We are seeing many millions of people losing their jobs. What we don't talk about is they're also losing their health care. Overall, overall, what do we think about a system which I think is being exposed today for what it is? And if anybody yesterday thought that an employer-based healthcare system made sense, well, I think many of them are reconsidering uh, that belief. So Senator, I'm get, let me get. All right. Sorry, you you called it exactly right, and have called it exactly right for years that we can't have a system where people have such a fragile attachment to healthcare. Now we're going to have 20 or 30 percent of the workforce devastated. And we have no system in place. So in the short term, we need health care for all in the emergency. But then we need Medicare for all, as you have rightly been saying. I mean, it is, also, it, it is also, frankly, remarkable to me that at a time when we spend so much on health care, twice as much per person as any other country, we do not have enough masks available for our doctors and our nurses. How do you spend what is it, 18% of your GDP and not have masks available so the doctors are dying, nurses are dying unnecessarily. All right, let me get back to Bob Reich. Uh, Bob, what are the lessons? I mean, what is happening really right now, and others have said this, is we are seeing, we are exposing, the, this crisis is exposing all of the injustices the irrationalities of the American system in terms of healthcare and in terms of economics. So, Bob, what do you think are the lessons that we should be thinking about? What do we learn? If there's a silver lining in this disaster, what are the lessons that we should be learning as we crawl our way out of where we are right now, Bob? Uh, well, if there is a silver lining, one lesson obviously is that government matters and people are dependent and need government and they need gov a competence government. Uh, another very important lesson is that they need and everybody is dependent on a healthcare system that is universal, that is based upon a single payer, as you, Bernie, have put on the table in 2016 and even before that. Uh, people, I think, are learning that the hard way, as Jeff Sachs just said, a third piece of learning is that our safety nets are full of holes. Unemployment insurance does not work. We have got to make sure, and people are now willing to listen to the fact, as they were in the 1930s, that these kinds of systems have to be set up for all of us. It's not just for them, uh, a, the minorities or the poor. or the No, it, we all are dependent on having this degree of security. Bob, let me just jump in here to read some information that I saw today. And I should have known about this, but I did not. And I suspect most viewers do not. When you think about the unemployment compensation program, probably most people think, well, if I lose my job, you know, I'll be able to get some help until I get a new job. Not an irrational thought, reasonable thought, ain't true. I want you to hear this. Uh, we have a situation where in 16 states in America, fewer than 20% of unemployed workers receive benefits. Got that 20%. In four states, it is one in 10. In more than 40 states, less than 40% of unemployed workers are eligible for unemployment benefits. 
So if you are driving an Uber, uh, if you are an independent contract, if you're self-employed and your job disappears in virtually every state in this country until a few weeks ago, you would be ineligible for unemployment. And the other thing we're seeing, and people jump in and pick up on this, is because this country has such contempt for working class people, is that we have completely ignored the need to create uh, unemployment systems in an efficient way. In my state of Vermont, our computer system is 40 years old, 40 years old, unable to address the enormous influx of applications. Other states are in worse shape. And then on top of that, in my state, and I'm sure it's true in other states, if there is an issue, if there is an issue, if your application can't quite go through smoothly, half of the people are still not getting the benefits that they applied for. All right, let's talk about the current state of the unemployment compensation uh, system. Stephanie, you got some thoughts on that? Well, you're, you hit it uh, already. It is antiquated. It is overwhelmed. These are the very moments that put the greatest strain on the system that we have. And the system is not designed for this kind of intake. I was talking to someone the other day who said that they literally made 1,000 phone calls to the unemployment, to apply for unemployment insurance and could not get through. They said 1,000 phone calls in a day. In a, they just kept calling and calling. So you're exactly right. We have a social safety net that has so badly frayed. We have had disinvestment in our, in our social infrastructure over a long period of decades, and that has left us vulnerable in so many ways, not able to respond in times of crises. The longer it days matter for people in this situation, hours and days are critical. And if you can't help people at the moment they are in, in crisis, then many of them begin defaulting on the rent payment. And Sarah was talking about all of the other kinds of obligations, recurring obligations. You'll have your electric bill turned off. You'll lose your car. You'll, so we are um, in a situation where we do not have the redundancies in the system. We don't have a, a strong infrastructure in place to deal with a crisis like the one we're in the midst of. I want to say on unemployment compensation for a minute. Let me go to Sarah. And Sarah, speak not only... Um, as head of the flight attendants, but as a member of the board of the AFL-CIO, obviously this issue of unemployment compensation is something that you guys have been talking about for a while. Uh, what's your sense of, of what's going on with that system today? Well, I'll tell you um, from direct experience that we already have flight attendants who have been out of work who have taken voluntary leaves because they can afford to have a little bit less and they were counting on that unemployment insurance. Um, they, these have been bid on a month-long basis, so they have not been able to get the unemployment insurance. And so they've come back and said, I can't pay my bills, I can't do any of this, so I can't afford to go out. And that backs up everyone else as well. But you look at the construction workers who are out of work now and looking for that unemployment and can't get it and have also lost their health insurance and have gotten sick because they were working too long because there were not safety nets in the place where they were working. So a high percentage of them have become sick. 
you know, there are essential workers right now. If we want to talk about, you know, the people who are on the front lines right now, counting on other people to be able to get unemployment so that their jobs can continue. Think about the postal workers, 550,000 uh, workers who are essential workers who have been going to work every single day, six days a week, delivering packages to our homes, that people are, that's vital to people being able to survive right now. And this administration has refused to give the money to keep that postal system in place. That has a ripple effect across the economy and the rest of us as well. And so it is not working and no one has confidence in it working. And that's why we have to have other solutions in addition to being able to isolate those who are vulnerable and fall through the cracks so that we can use systems like unemployment to help them. But the system is simply not created to be an HR solution for the entire country. Okay. All right. What I want to do now uh, is take a look at what goes on in other countries, not only in terms of how they are responding to this crisis. And I want to talk about that, but I want to go a step further. One of the things that I have learned over the years is there is a very strong disinclination among the ruling class of this country to take a look at what goes on in other countries. You know, there is a presumption that everything that goes on in America is right, we're unique, we don't make mistakes, we don't have to pay attention to the rest of the world. I am talking to you tonight from Burlington, Vermont, 50 miles away from here is Canada, where every man, woman, and child has healthcare is a human right, and guess what? They're spending 50% per capita of what we're spending. You might think that somebody might want to take a hard look. You don't like Canada? Good. Look at Scandinavia. Look at the UK. Look at Germany. But every other major country on earth is guaranteeing health care to all people in almost every case at far less cost per capita. All right. But that's health care. Let's go beyond health care. How are workers treated? Uh, Bob, I'll go back to you. Uh, in other countries. Why? When major recessions take place, are workers often today and in the past better protected? What goes on in other countries that is not going on in the United States? Well, first of all, Bernie, uh, you got to understand the United States, and you've said it, is an outlier. We are kind of the extreme on the continuum. Our workers, our average working people are treated worse than the working people in every other advanced nation. Uh, we are. Say that again, Bob. Bob. It is important for people to understand that it is not just healthcare. What about paid family and medical leave? It's not just healthcare. It's everything. If you talk about pay, you know, we we lag other countries right now in terms of pay for our working class. We don't provide paid sick leave. We don't provide paid family and medical leave. We don't provide healthcare. We don't provide people with unemployment insurance of the sort that really does uh, keep them going. We don't provide anything. The only people in our country who actually do well are the very rich. We have socialism for the rich, and we've got harsh capitalism for everybody else. Good point. And uh, one point you didn't make, which will shock some people, are paid vacation days. If you go Absolutely. to countries in Scandinavia and in Germany, how many, anyone here know how many days those guys get guaranteed? Five weeks. Five weeks. Ah, five weeks. And there are people in America who are getting jobs which have literally no paid vacation at all. All right. Uh, Jeff, I know that you have been for many years involved 
uh, in, in working in other countries, uh, IMF, etc. You have a, a good familiarity with what's going on. Talk a little bit, pick up on where Bob left off, how we treat the working class of this country, uh, our children, the elderly workers, compared to other countries. I, I wanted to uh, start with one uh, weird uh, point, which is, uh, and uh, it refers to Stephanie's uh, friend who made a thousand calls. We are so far behind in the basic mechanics of using digital technology uh, that it's like living in a different planet. Why aren't people able to go online and register for a federal emergency unemployment assistance straightforwardly? What's happening in these very successful countries that are stopping the epidemic is they're using digital technology for public health and for government services. In China, which contained the epidemic, 800 million people are on Alipay, which was one of the mechanisms uh, that was used for actually the public health control. In Korea, which has been so successful, they're just online. So when an issue comes administratively, they have an easy technical solution. We don't even have that digital access as a general matter. So we're already 10 or 15 years behind. Not the elites in this country, but average people do not have access to the basic systems that are now possible in a technological digital age. So it's, it's back to this question of uh, this labyrinth of certainties. Of course, the system is not designed to be friendly. It's just like our voting. How hard it is to vote in this country, that's by design. Uh, in any other country, they want people to vote. In our democracy, the Republican Party's entire game is to suppress voting. And so it's a complete labyrinth to do it, whereas in other countries you have a digital registration or you're automatically registered and it's very straightforward. So if we wanted to modernize our society to be for everybody, the tools exist to do it. And look at Canada, you mentioned, by the way, Canada's death rate from COVID-19 per million population is one third of America's because they have a public health system. Same, uh, same connections with the world, same connections with China, all the rest, but they've controlled it more systematically than the United States. So we're living in such a weird world where I looked it up uh, just a moment ago, and I know you know it very well. Jeff Bezos today is worth $138 billion. His wealth has gone up $12 billion in this crisis. This is insanity what's happening in this country. But this is by political design, a part of this country that really believes people don't count. Even lives don't count. Open the economy doesn't matter if there's going to be an epidemic. It's the money we want. And this is the mentality that has led us to the unprecedented inequalities, unprecedented breakdown of basic public services like being able to get online for unemployment compensation or to vote, and the injustices that all of us are talking about where American workers are, by every objective standard, treated worse than in all the other countries. And by the way, there's virtually no discussion of that reality. I happen to agree with you. 
But most Americans don't know that. Most Americans keep thinking, well, we're the wealthiest country in the world. Well, yeah, if you are one of the three people who owns more wealth than the bottom half of America, you're doing phenomenally well. That's the point. I want to get back to, in terms of lessons to be learned from this horrific moment in our history, um, Stephanie, what can we learn in terms of guaranteeing economic rights? I, I often remember that in the 1940s, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt made the point that economic rights are human rights. That it's not just the question, yeah, you have the right to vote, you can have the right to uh, practice your religion, freedom of speech, all great. But are you a free person if you can't afford health care, if you can't send your kid to a, a decent school? What can, as, as the American people, I think, struggle with this moment and say, what happened? Why are we where? We are today. How do we go forward in a different way? Stephanie, what are some of your thoughts? What do we learn maybe from other countries? Where should we be going in terms of economic rights as human rights? What does that mean? Well, I think if there is, as we've talked about silver lining, if there is a silver lining in this horrific crisis that we're in, I guess it's that if the, when the pieces all fall apart, someone gets to pick them up and put them together again. And you don't have to put them back together the way they were before. You can put them together differently. And you can build something that is not like what you had before. We don't want to go back to the institutions that we had before, to the supply chains that we had before, to the health care that we had before, to the minimum wage laws that we've had before. So when we talk about human rights and economic rights, if we had what FDR envisioned with the second bill of economic rights, if we had succeeded in putting something like that in place, we wouldn't be in a situation today where tens of millions of people are losing their jobs and wondering, when will I ever have another job? Because you would be guaranteed a right to employment. You All right, start on that one. Let me just start. There's a lot of issues to be talked about. Um, and one of the issues that I feel strongly about, I know you do, and I suspect everybody on this panel, is the guaranteed right to a decent paying job. What does that mean? How would that, what, what does that mean for the future of this country? Stephanie? So, so if we had something like that in place, and God knows, I wish we did, because all of these people who are now falling out of employment and onto the unemployed roles could instead transition into employment. There would be a safety net there and a guaranteed right to a job, no matter what happens to the private sector, no matter what decisions their employers take. So if we had a program like that in place, we could still hold many of these people at home and keep them safe for the moment. They don't have to go out and start performing actual work somewhere in the economy, but we would be in a position to design jobs for these people so that when, as Jeff keeps talking about, when it is safe to begin to open up the economy and have people go back out, people could be delivering food right now. They could be helping to deliver medicine. We could have people sewing masks and PPE. There could be productive activity taking place through a public service employment program or a job guarantee if we had a program like that in place. And we could pay everyone in the meantime. Let me go to Bob and then to Sarah. But... 
you know, somebody's listening out there, guaranteed jobs. Where are you going to come up with these jobs? You know, is this going to people just going to be shoveling ditches here? Is this just going to be make work? Uh, in my view, there's an enormous amount of work that needs to be done today when we change priorities in America. Uh, Bob, what do you think? Is there work to be done in America today? Bob, we don't hear you. Are you on and mute? Not, there you go. All right. Not only are there an enormous number of jobs that need to be done, uh, but you have said repeatedly, uh, Bernie, that we need a Green New Deal. There are so many things that need to be done with regard to the environment and public health and all kinds of public values and public safety uh, that we now see, I think most Americans now have a better idea of what some of those uh, jobs could be and should be. Uh, the other point, though, is that it's not just a matter of jobs, it's a matter of good jobs. Right. And I want to emphasize this point, because we got down unemployment, the official rate of unemployment before the pandemic got to be pretty low. But the jobs that Americans had were not paying very well. Most Americans for 40 years have not had a raise. We need to have, and Sarah, you know, you know this better than anybody, the trade union movement in this country was responsible for the, for the kind of countervailing power we had for years, decades in this country, uh, that actually generated better and better pay, better and better working conditions and benefits for working people. But we've gone from 35% in the 1960s down to 6.4% of private sector workers who are unionized. Part of the deal has got to be stronger countervailing power, stronger unions, making it easier to form unions, uh, and that workers really need, that's the only way workers are going to be able to politically demand and get a better deal. Absolutely right. Sarah, questions, two questions. All right. Yes. There's enough work to be done in America to put millions of people to work. And what role should the trade union movement be playing in protecting the working class of this country? So, yes, there is plenty of work to be done. And let me just give you an example. Right now, flight attendants are being asked to sign up as a worker health force. So flight attendants have minimum uh, medical training. And so we are being asked actually to help uh, plug in, even in a virtual sense, like Jeff was talking about earlier, um, helping to get trained through the Red Cross, get on the phone, talk with people, assess people, free up some of the medical personnel to be able to do the actual medical work. So there is a lot of work that we could be doing that we can plug in right now. And as Stephanie's saying, when some of the normal work comes down, there are jobs that you can give people that contribute to the economy, contribute to the direct need. And the fact of the matter is that everyone wants to take pride in the work that they do. This idea that if you don't have a job, you are lazy, is, a, is an idea in this country that has been sown to keep people divided from each other. We have 44% of this country that is living in poverty right now, okay? 44% of this country is living in poverty. And that is because we have been led to believe that if you don't have a job, you are lazy. And if you have certain jobs, it is not a job that should be enough to take care of you and your family. And that is just not true. All work has to have dignity. So the way to raise that up is to organize in the millions. And one of the reasons that we need to be successful right now is because people want to be a part of a successful movement. This idea that we can't have health care for all, Medicare for all, 
because somehow that is going to take away from the desire to be in a union is absurd. The whole idea behind negotiating health care happened because the labor movement couldn't get health care for all. So we negotiated with our employers to have that in place. But the end result is supposed to be building, building, building for health care for all. When I go to talk to Canadians, Canadian labor unions about what we deal with in the United States and how we spend two thirds of our time at the table talking about healthcare and how it's never about getting better. It's always about trying to hang on to what we negotiated 30 years ago. They can't believe it. This is why we can't get contracts in this country. This is why we can't move forward. And it also shows why we have had this extreme uh, increase in productivity in this country while wages have remained flat that starts at 1980. 1980 is when Ronald Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers for going on strike and, and the right to strike started to be diminished and there was an extreme attack on unions. And that is what has driven the extreme inequality in this country. So we have a job to do right now when people are looking for answers. They're looking for answers in this country because they're hurting and they're hurting especially right now. And so we can put the call out about what labor unions can do. The only reason there is anything good in that CARES Act is because the labor movement was able to advocate and able to push on Congress to put that in place. And we're, that is why we're seeing actually a bipartisan response to the plan that you're talking about now, Bernie, is because workers are, who are organized together and standing up together and pushing back are creating the political will for that to happen. All right, Sarah, let me just ask you a question. At a time when millions of workers are hurting, often working longer hours for lower wages, inadequate health care, they want to join unions. They there has join. been more support, if I'm not mistaken, right now uh, on the part of workers who want to join unions, who support the trade union movement. What do we have to do in your judgment to make it easier for workers to be able to form unions? Well, we have to restore the right to strike, frankly. I mean, that that is because people get results immediately when you have the ability with, to withhold your labor when you don't agree with the conditions that you're working under. You should have that right to strike and be able to exercise that for recognition as a union. That is fundamental. We have to have the ability also for workers who are at a property who have a majority of support for the union to be able to be recognized right away and not have these elections delayed, not have these employers delay bargaining for years and years. There has to be the ability to get to those agreements. The labor plan that you put forward, the labor plan that you put forward during your campaign is exactly yeah. what we need. And we need that now. Um, but I will tell you that we also need the idea in this country that the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, belongs to the American people. It needs to be open to the American people right now, and we need to claim it. And we need to understand that we can stop thinking about this country as a top-down country and start thinking about it as the people's voice rising up. And so we actually have the ability right now to turn this on this head with, it, with this virus, because this virus is showing us that if one person is mistreated in this country, if one person doesn't have the means to take care of themselves, then we are all in jeopardy. And that's what we can flip on its head. People want solidarity right now. And I'm going to tell you, Bernie, there were some people saying here, what is the point of this? You know, we, we want to have real political revolution and change in this movement. And we have this moment to push forward. It is not about individual people. It's not about me. It's about us, right? 
And so um, that's what this moment is about. And I think Stephanie alluded to that earlier, that we can come out of this with a fresh thinking about how we have to reach out the hand and take care of each other and how that's going to lift each other up. That because your neighbor does better doesn't mean you're going to do worse. If your neighbor does better, they're going to make it a higher ring to reach for and make it better for all of us. I want to spend a minute because I think many Americans don't know. I want to spend a minute uh, going back to this issue of what goes on in other countries. And I don't know who wants to jump in here. Uh, if just the simple stuff, all right? If I am a couple in uh, Scandinavia and we are so excited because we're going to have a baby. Wow, beautiful, all right? And the mom is pregnant and she gives birth. In this country, there are women who go back to work in a week or two weeks yep. after giving birth because they need that paycheck to take care of the family. Who wants to tell us, uh, Jeff, gonna, anybody else? I'm going to tell you right now, Bernie. I know. This is Sarah. I represent flight attendants all over the world. And in other countries, you have one year, two years that's paid for by the government so that you can bond with that child. You can nurse that child. You can take care of that child. You can actually raise a family in a normal way. And that is what we do not have here. Sarah, there is probably nobody in America who has heard, I mean, you know, you know it, I know it. But I want to make this point again. I want everybody to hear what Sarah said, which is true. It varies country to country. That's true. But in some countries, when you have a baby, mom has the opportunity to stay home for six months, eight months, a year, maybe full pay, depending on the country, maybe half pay, maybe 75% pay. Dad gets some time off as well in order to bond with the baby. If I propose something like that in the United States Congress today, they would escort me out and send me to a psychiatric institute. I believe that women, families have the right to bond with their babies. What a radical idea. And in this country, unbelievably, you correct me if I'm wrong here, anybody, there are women who give birth and a week later, forget bonding with your baby, you're back at work trying to make a living to take care of your family. Am I wrong on that, Jeff? Bernie, all through the campaign, when you were attacked as a radical proposal for this, radical proposal for that, the things you were calling for are the normal things in Canada, all through Europe. The guaranteed uh, paid leave, absolute uh, universal health coverage, guaranteed vacation time, guaranteed maternity leave, and for fathers too. Uh, these are completely normal things. Uh, and moving a government system to efficiency and online and being able to vote with much higher rates. These are normal. America became, and it really does start, just as Sarah said, January 20th, 1981, Ronald Reagan went on war with government. And since that time, the government has been in a continuing state of downfall until we have a, a psychopath as leader right now who is destroying everything, but now people are dying massively because of all the failures that you have been emphasizing for so many years and which people have called you radical for emphasizing when these are the normal things that any well-to-do society should have. So it is completely right what you're saying. 
that uh, this is not only not crazy, it's not only not a hypothesis, it's proven. And right. it's as we think, rethink quarter from Vermont. <laughs> as we rethink America out of this crisis, let's take a look at the children. I mentioned um, parental leave, talked about the benefits that moms and dads get in other countries. Who wants to jump in, in in general? How do we treat the children of this country? Every politician in the world gives the speech, children are the future. We love our children. Oh my goodness. Uh, Bob Reich, how do we treat the kids in this country? Uh, well, no country, if we're comparing other countries to the United States, no country, advanced country, uh, treats children as badly as we treat our children. And not only in terms of degrees of poverty, uh, and homelessness, which is the great scandal of America, the number of homeless children in America, uh, but also the education system that is so really prejudiced against uh, the poor, black, people of color, children who are not getting the kind of education they need. We talk a lot about equal opportunity in this country, but relative to other advanced countries, we're not providing anything close to equal opportunity. Uh, the other point that needs to be emphasized here, Bernie, and you have emphasized it again and again, no other nation, advanced nation, tolerates the degree of inequality of income and wealth and political power that we tolerate here in the United States. You know, the big, big gap, the big political divide in America should not be left versus right. It really should be democracy versus oligarchy. It should be most people coming together, understanding that they are getting uh, the, the crumbs on the table relative to what the people who have the power and the wealth to change politics to suit their needs and to change the free market to suit their desires and their aspirations. Uh, that is what is fundamentally morally wrong and what distinguishes so powerfully where we are from where other advanced nations are. Uh, we've got to change this. You talk about a political revolution, you're absolutely right. And I want to speak, I'm sure I speak for everybody on the panel and millions, tens of millions of other Americans, when I salute you, Bernie Sanders, uh, for putting squarely on the table, not just in this election, but for years, what we as a nation need to do, where we need to go, and the kind of political revolution that is absolutely necessary. And Bob, what I have learned from all of that is others have just, just said, these ideas are not radical. And when you talk to people about them, they say, yeah, that makes sense. And I think what we have got to figure out, you know, Nelson Mandela, I used this during the campaign a whole lot. He had a very profound statement, he said, it always seems impossible until it is done. Always seems impossible until it is done. Oh, we can't have health care for all. It's impossible. We can't have uh, free tuition at public colleges and universities. We can't lead the world in combating climate change. We can't end a broken and racist criminal justice system and a terrible immigration system. Can't be done, can't be done until we do it. Then everyone looks back and say, hey, no big deal. Of course we should have done that. All right. Think, of, think about what the Chicago teachers did this year. 
So they did not just fight for raises for themselves. And in fact, actually, their strike did not change the amount that the mayor was willing to spend on raises for them. What they fought for was affordable housing. What they fought for was bringing tens of thousands of workers who work in school support out of poverty and making tens of thousands of more for their families and a living wage for those people. They fought for school nurses in the school. Think about this. If you have a child who is struggling in school and has class sizes that are extraordinary, that are huge, and all that child needs is a school nurse to find out they're not hearing and they need a hearing aid in order to have a chance in school. They need a pair of glasses so that they can actually see the board or see the computer. And that's going to make the difference. That's what those teachers fought for. They taught, they, they fought for people to have a chance in this society. And so that's what unions do. And that's what teachers are doing who are closest to our children. And so we got to give people the chance to come together and fight for each other in the community and understand that when we raise the standards for the community, we raise the standards for everything all around us. When we negotiated mass trade deals that sent our manufacturing outside of the United States, States. Our communities suffered. Our tax base suffered. Our, our education system suffered. Guess what? We used to have a base of 4,000 flight attendants in Pittsburgh. After NAFTA was signed, that went down to zero and it was closed. This affects all of us. What affects one of us affects all of us. And so I just want to note, though, too, Bernie, as you were talking about the children, we really have to recognize what the teachers have done over the last two yeah. years yeah. to not just fight for themselves, but to fight for the kids and the schools that kids deserve and the communities that we all want. Yeah, and that was not only in Chicago. That is in not West only Virginia, in Chicago. Kentucky and so-called conservative states all over the country. Uh, let me get back to Stephanie maybe stephanie you know when we talk about massive levels of income and wealth inequality uh, i think it was jeff mentioning that uh, jeff bezos has uh, seen his uh, wealth soar uh richest guy in in the world i believe uh you know so people say well he's a billionaire and i got nothing that's unfair but what really what does this level of income and wealth inequality when so few have so much and so many people are struggling. And when big money controls to a large degree the political system, what does it mean for the fabric of American society? Stephanie, your mute button. You're in mute, yeah. Stephanie. There we go. Thank you. Um, it is it is destructive in so many ways, as you've pointed out again and again. It is, um, it is destructive when it comes to the way our economy works and functions. If you are shoveling half of all new income, or roughly that, to the people at the very top of the income ladder, to the top 1%, what you're doing is you're making it more and more difficult for the economy to function well, because those are the people who tend to spend less and save more. So they don't turn around and spend that money back into the economy to help support jobs and, and economic well-being. So it's destructive in terms of the functioning of the economy, but as you routinely pointed out, it's also destructive and corrosive to our democracy. These people have immense power as a result of these incredible concentrations of wealth, and they use that power not just to control, in many ways, our economic lives, but to control and influence the political process. And so um, for a whole range of reasons, we have got to get at 
and begin to unwind this decades-long trend that has left us with levels of income and wealth inequality that rival the Gilded Age. All right, we have some questions, I think. Uh, do we have some questions? But before we get to the questions, let me throw out to everybody here. You know, I get, I hear this all of the time. You know, Bernie, you're talking utopia, you know, you can't, it's impossible to provide a decent standard of living for all people, it can't happen. So my simple question to you is, can we make it happen? Is this some kind of uh, economic issue which says that all people can't have a good life? Or is this a political issue in which we, as a government, as a Congress, lack the political will to represent working families? It's any reason why we can't create a decent life for all of our people. It, it's obviously uh, not a fundamental economic issue because uh, other countries uh, achieve the things we're talking about. It is a political issue here, and it is the power of big money and the greed. It's worth pointing out that together with Mr. Bezos and his $138 billion today, the top 15 Americans total have a trillion dollars of wealth today, a trillion dollars. This means our economy functions, but the income goes to the top. The wealth goes to the top. And now we see plainly all the suffering that results from that. With this mass suffering, our eyes need to be opened. You're, you are the one that has done more than anybody to help open the eyes of the American people to this. But this crisis is the opportunity to build in a fundamentally different way going forward, but in a way that has already proven itself in so many other places. All right, Bob, are we being utopian here, otherworldly, or can we, in fact, as a nation, protect our children so that they have great childcare, great education, that people can live in quality, affordable housing, that we have an infrastructure uh, that is efficient and non-polluting, uh, that we end poverty in America? Uh, is this utopian thinking, or is this something that we can affect you? Well, uh, Bernie, not only is it not utopian thinking, uh, as Jeff pointed out, other nations have managed it. But if you look back in time at the United States in the 30 years after the Second World War, we were on our way uh, before Ronald Reagan, uh, before neoconservatism, before all of the market fundamentalism hit America, we were on our way to a more equitable society. We still had a very, very long way to go, but we were on our way. Uh, as Louis Brandeis, the great justice said, we can either have great wealth in the hands of the few, or we can have a democracy, but we can't have both. And I think the real failing and the ultimate, the ultimate consequence of so much frustration, so much insecurity, so much anxiety on the part of so many Americans for decades is Donald Trump. I mean, what you get and what you invite is demagogues who appeal to the worst instincts in people because they don't otherwise have hope. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party really does need to wake up to the fact that we've had four decades of stagnant wages and we have had a country that is becoming more and more of an outlier relative to every other advanced country. And if the Democrats don't do this, frankly, I don't know who's going to do it. Maybe we have a third party. 
All right, let so, me just jump in because we are running out of, of time, actually. Just start off with the very first question that I see here, and it's from uh, Billy, uh, who writes, quote, what should the next administration do to reverse the corporate giveaway madness of the Trump administration? How do we end corporate welfare in America? Who wants to jump in on that one? Well, I think really what it's going to take, Bernie, is not necessarily what the administration is going to do, but what we demand of the administration. So don't expect that this is just going to happen for us. I think a lot of times when people hear that it is a political issue, they think that that relates to politics. No, it's a political issue, and a political issue means that we have to actually engage in those politics and demand the changes that we want. So the way to make change is to define what's at stake. That is the one thing about this virus that we can all have a common experience on. We all have a common interest in what is at stake here. And then what are we willing to do to fix it? What are we willing to do? The people in Wisconsin showed us what they were willing to do against all odds to go out and vote and make change. So we have to engage in the political process. The way that the, the wealthy class wins is by getting people to disengage in a democracy. And so we have to understand that no matter who is in the administration, the only way they can make change is if we demand it as a people. And from we have bottom got on to up is what I'm hearing you say, right? From from the bottom up. That's exactly right. All right. So we're gonna do it together. Okay. All right. I apologize. We're gonna have to get off. Uh, and I apologize to the viewers. We started late. We had a technical uh, hiccup in uh, DC. Uh, but uh, let me thank uh, Bob uh, and Sarah and Jeff and Stephanie, uh, not only for being here tonight, but for the great, great work uh, that they are doing uh, every day. So panelists, thank you. Viewers, thank you. We'll see you all soon.